welcome to Disability Movement Etc. Podcast that has really no idea what it's doing, but we're trying to have fun anyway. I'm your host, Dr. Andy. And for what I guess we'll informally call a season two, I am now joined by a new co-host. John, welcome to the pod, and why don't you introduce yourself to the dozens of listeners that we have? <laughs> Thank you. So, uh, yeah, my name is John Lepke. I'm currently based in Treaty 6 in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada, a long way from Texas. Significantly colder yeah. than where, uh, where Andy is right now. I am a disabled journalist, former parasport athlete. I always say I got to go to a bunch of cool stuff, but never anything important. Um, and I also have worked in the disability arts space, and I'm doing a Master's of Fine Arts in English and Theatre. <laughs> to sort of betray my politics, just or not betray as in betray them, but to show you my politics. Yeah. Uh, my Twitter bio has crippled and creative in it. So, um, yeah, you just started a new, a, you started a new newsletter, media but, company, right? I did a little media project. I'm calling it a media project so that I don't, I like I'm not it. putting too much stress on myself, but yeah company has all of these illusions to me of you know business paperwork that goes outside of freelancing and all of this stuff but yeah um i started a thing called uh it's it's initials of crpl so you know if you're a if you're somebody who is averse to reclaimed words then it's creatively responding <laughs> to problematic labels uh for the rest of us it's just ripple if you know you know um and yeah just trying to do a little bit more uh disability-led media yeah because, and we'll probably get into that today, but so much of disability media is like, here, fillet yourself for your trauma for 200 bucks. And I'm just not interested in that version of upward mobility. And we can do it for free too, right? Yeah, sure. For the, for the exposure. Yeah. Love, love exposure. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. If you're an academic like I am. Yeah. So I'll introduce myself or reintroduce myself for folks who maybe are finding this show for a new time or new. Oh, geez. We're going to have to do some lot of editing. <laughs> but in finding this show for the first time, I'm Dr. Andrew Colombo Dugavito. I am a faculty at a R1 mid-tier university down in the Dallas-Fort Worth area in Texas. So pretty much the opposite side of the North Americas, well, for the most part, from, from where John is. But where I grew up was almost Canada. I mean, it was probably as closer drive to Canada than it was the rest of the United States, because I grew up in the thumb of Michigan, so I think it was like three hours to Sarnia. So, a lot of overlap. There I've had go. poutine before, so I don't know if that makes me an honorary Canadian. <laughs> But I'm so glad you're here, John. This is a little bit of a switch from how I envisioned the show and how the show went in the first, I guess, season, if we're going to use those podcast terminologies, right? And in the past, I kind of wanted to use the medium because it was the pandemic and I didn't know what to do. And of course, as a white male, I hadn't started a podcast yet. So it was a good opportunity all around, you know? So, but I invited... uh four different individuals in and we had great conversations. But I think after doing that, it, it really dawned on me that there's, there is a lot of that interview type podcast and more or less there's 
some of that in the disability community, but there's not one that really talks about issues back and forth and then invites different people in sort of on a regular basis, like, you know, a political podcast, although I wouldn't venture to say that this is at all a political podcast beyond two of us maybe reading Twitter for longer than we should each day. Well, and, and beyond existence being in, in, in crypt existence being inherently political. Yeah, and, and yeah. I think, you know, Andy, you and I talked off air about this, but a lot of the podcasts that do exist um, that are flourishing are ones that are our partnerships. Um, you know, when I was, when I was running the Disability Visibility uh, podcast, um, there's a couple uh, wheelchair basketball podcasts that exist that are partnerships. Yeah, the sustaining momentum that can happen when it's not just one disabled person rallying against a concrete wall is, uh, is you know, inherently uh, valuable. Yeah. And I think it's also a part of this little podcast is now a part of sort of a bigger thing, too, that both you and I are a part of. And we'll talk more about, but, you know, doing a actual kind of company that's that's striving to sort of prioritize i guess some voices over you know not over others right but just maybe giving a little bit more space allowing people to tell their stories without them also having to start their own podcast and do those things so because both of us kind of you know we get a little benefit in our our I guess, professional careers too, right? You as a journalist, me as an academic and scholar. It kind of helps to have something like this. So I'm excited for, for what we're going to do. We don't, I mean, it's kind of loosey-goosey today as uh, in a term to use that one of my colleagues actually said in a research talk at one point. Oh, really? I've never Great. let him down we, for we it. Love yeah. That. yeah. I wonder what is the academicalized version of loosey-goosey? Oh, yeah. Um, uh, didn't maintain rigor or, or something. Yeah, main, maintained a, a methodological flexibility. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's there's ways we can academically at this, but so I think moving forward, this show's definitely gonna change and grow and and shift. And whoever's listening, you're gonna be along for the journey. We'll invite you to give us feedback. Hopefully it's positive. At least if you're going to write a negative review, give us five stars first, right? <laughs> the way we'll typically go, right, is that John and I, in the sort of preparation for these shows, we'll think up some topics, things that are sort of on our minds, or perhaps we just happen to see it flick into a notification right before we hit record. Well, we'll just talk about these and, and try to put them into a little bit of context because John mentioned this. But I don't know if I've mentioned it yet. I'm also disabled. Uh, I have ADHD and depression and both things that it took me until my young adulthood to actually accept, acknowledge, and have now spent half a decade trying to figure out what that all means. And, you know, also realizing you know, I, I realized for a long time that often didn't feel like I could say that I was disabled, right? Because I'm more or less pretty otherwise abled. I, I would consider myself a pretty athletic person, 
and I was saying I had that preconception of disability not meaning able to do stuff, right? That was kind of my ingrained stigma I had, and it took me a long time to to actually acknowledge it. You know, we'll hopefully get to talk more about that as we go through. And John, I know you've got your stories too, as well, to go into. Yeah, many, many, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not known for being quiet and I'm, you know, just because you, you brought it up and, and this is, you know, a way into some of the things that we want to talk about with this podcast. You know, we often talk about internalized ableism as this sort of one, uh, as you explained it, you know, uh, Andy, I don't want to put labels on how, how you identify yourself at all, but it's, this, yeah. it's we often label internalized ableism as an issue for the people coming into our communities. Um, mm-hmm. I, I've been prone to write community in these kinds of spaces. I like to call it communities because when we're when we're when we're considering disability, um, you know, a group of disabled folks as a singular thing that um, we create, you know, uh, a challenges yeah. there. When when also no you monolith, know um, right? that parasport experience. You know, Andy, when when you were speaking about that, you were speaking about you know, with this perception of internalized ableism is something that only people who are coming into the community have. Um, and I think one of the things that that we'll get into over the course of, of uh, this podcast run is that internalized ableism. You know, I'm an ambulatory wheelchair user. Uh, almost every photo of me on the internet involves a wheelchair in some way. You know, my my disability is Googleable because I have written about my trauma for money, and but I've been very selective about that, to be honest. Um, but also the internalized ableism of um, of parasport of this perception of what disability means. Things like some disabled athletes really hating when when the Paralympics are equated with the Special Olympics. And that can sometimes play out as, oh, I'm not like those people over there. When from a disability justice, disability movement perspective, like we're all disabled people in space together. We've just created this false divide with lateral lateral and internalized ableism around what disability can and should look like even in an athletic space. And so there's certainly, um, and and we're seeing this with, with the COVID pandemic of like, Sure, there are some definite unpacking that people with long COVID and, and some other uh, conditions, if we're going to use the medical term, you know, uh, should look at. I think it's fair to say coming into disability community, um, but also some of the reporting that I've done has to say what folks saying. But also, you know, disability community needs to do some unpacking about the the the, the perceptions of what counts as disability being so inherently tied to these sort of diagnostic rubber stamping methodologies, I guess you could call it, of community. Oh, sure. And I'm going to go off script here, but I was looking at this, uh, not that we have a script, but I was looking at this earlier today, and uh, I don't know how much you're following any of the American politic, what's going on. Up oh, there in the are north. we talking about Fetterman? Because Alex Green and I yeah. wrote a piece about, well, about the general he barriers did. to disabled politicians. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, here's, well, this maybe is a little bit more recent than that. It was 
they had the debate last night. So, uh, Dr. Oz, and I struggle to say doctor when I say his name, but Dr. Oz and John Fetterman had their senatorial debate last night. It was the only one they were going to have, right? And I didn't watch it, of course, <laughs> because I was also at work teaching, but because I could just follow the news afterwards and scroll through, and I was, and I did. And I was scrolling through Twitter, and I was just trying to pick up what was going on in the, in the blips and all the clips that they have, right? And I noticed that, a co- well, a couple of things I noticed. One, <laughs> there's certainly a divide of who they think, who people think won the, the debate and, and how their responses went along. But the other thing I noticed was it was less on when they said who won or who didn't win or who performed well. It had nothing to do with the actual answers themselves. It was like Fetterman couldn't string a sentence together or he he just happened to have a gaffe where I think he said goodnight, everybody, when he uh, did his introduction, which... Yeah, it's a little off, right? But saying good night is a welcoming thing. Like, I mean, it was technically nighttime, right? It was eight o'clock at night. But I mean, that's night, right? But so much, so much of the coverage and the pointing to it was that it had nothing to do with what was actually said in the debate or how people, how the actual candidates responded. But it was this idea of is Fetterman fit enough because he didn't have TV level quips. Like they were in Dr. Oz's realm. The dude was on TV for a decade. So he's used to this thing. And John Fetterman had a stroke, but he's also not a TV person. (laughs) He's just generally like a small town mayor. And all of the coverage then is about how, well, he, how unfitted Fetterman is because he didn't have these quips ready to go and he maybe had a few gaffes in there where he mixed up some words or the other thing I heard too was that his speech was off, right? So he might've put some enunciation on some different words, you know, or he might've like trailed off differently, you know, instead of going up, he kind of went down or whatever, all sort of typical, atypical things, right? But, Everybody's equating that, the idea of what it looks like on the outside to fittedness in office. And like, it just made me angry. So I'm going to, let's talk about that. Sure. I mean, historically, and again, I'm Canadian. It exists in Canadian politics, but we're, we're talking about U.S. today. Yeah. You know, I, I, I tweeted out that, that I thought that I don't really make grand pronouncements about politics, partially because sometimes I cover them. But partially because yeah. I am Canadian and I don't think that, you know, my my broad takes are that helpful. But I did I did say yesterday that if if Oz wins this election, a large percentage of the reason why he will have won this election, in my view, as a disabled journalist, is that the media decide to focus on something. They made a mountain out of a molehill. It's not that you mm-hmm. can't talk about captioning, which is the defense that a number of the outlets hid behind, was like, well, it's in the interest of voters. You know, mm-hmm. the one interview, it's, 
what is it, a six-minute interview in four and a half minutes or about the captioning device. There are other ways of framing that, and, and the defensiveness of media means that there that that I mean it just shows a lack of learning in, in those spaces, they think. We know that this can be done well. There's an Atlantic piece. I'm sorry that I don't have the journalist's name in front of me. Um, I think it's called Joe Biden, His Stutter, and Me. I can get the link for you for the show notes. But, you know, it's yeah. a half personal, half reported piece uh, from a journalist who stutters about talking to Biden about when that was a focus of the Trump campaign. There are ways of doing this ethically and equitably. Um the media, quite frankly, in general, I hate to use the general, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. put us all with the same brush. But the majority chose um, a certain way and, and and chose a certain direction and then doubled down. Um, and I don't think if you ask the general, you know, if you if you if you did a survey of the disability, the, the, the wideness of the disability community or communities, I don't think anybody would argue that that captioning wasn't something the media could mention. The, the argument is, why are we why are we focusing on this? And did we learn nothing from things like Trump making fun of a disabled journalist? I mean, they all doubled down on that because that was quote unquote one of their own, one of our own as disabled journalists. But then they can't see that, whatever, whatever it is, six years later or however many years it is. When they reverberate that same thing in their own coverage, and there are a million ways that media do that, whether that's from a structural point of view, um, whether that's the questions that we ask, whether that's that's how we portray things, you know, it, it's uh, it's a question of does it become your full full focus? And uh, yeah, just because it's the easy lead doesn't mean it needs to be. Um, you just need to do more, more thinking, more thinking on this. Yeah, I, I think it's a struggle. I think as someone who's come into to write about disability, is when I go back and read my early papers, <laughs> I'm just like, "Oh man, this is bad." I, I struggled with it. Right? I mean, I. I repeated the tropes that I that I knew, right? Or I I had misunderstandings or, or presumptions or assumptions that I think to this day the academic community still upholds regularly. And it's it's humbling to acknowledge like that you did portray that and you did engage with that. But I think it's empowering when then you go back on the other side and you go, okay, now I'm going to do it better because I didn't do so good in the past (laughs) and I'm not going to get it. You're not going to get it right every time. There's work. I'm not going to name drop because I don't think it helps, but there are disabled journalists that regularly, I don't think, get it right. I've certainly not got it right in everything I've ever reported on in my career. The problem is when you're not willing to sit with that, to sit in the shit and think about how your um, how your practice can be better, to sit with people and hear when you've done something that wasn't perfect, when you when you sit there and, and to be able to take that in and decide for yourself as whether that's a valid criticism. 
Like if I have a right. disabled reader who is mad that I used identity first language, I have to engage in good, in my point of view of journalism. If I'm going to choose to engage with that person, like if they send me an email, I don't go in comment sections. Yeah, as that's a rule. probably good self-preservation. Yeah, I, I do read them um, quite often just because I like to get a sense. And I, I don't I mean, I'm a white male in media. It's not like I get the harassment. That All right. Your senior yeah. colleagues get. Um, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the LGBTQ colleagues get women get like it. But I have to engage in good faith that hi. This piece, I use identity first language. I mean, I add out that I wrote the piece for a uh, pointer about the um, NCDJ style guide for uh, about disability. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm, I yeah. can say I, I'm making this choice intentionally by asking sources about it. I understand that person first may be your preference. And if I was interviewing you and you wanted person first, then that's what would end up in the story as a hypothetical. But we have to be willing to engage with that, even if we think we, we quote unquote, know better. <laughs> I get that too in academia because, I mean, the overwhelming majority is, prefers identity first language. And some of my early work really focused in the autistic community. And it became very evident in my work in engaging with the adults that I was uh, with, the uh, adolescents, even families, I picked up on those, their verbiage. And it's like, and of course, reading outside of that, reading, um, you know, advocates and, and folks who are, are sharing their own stories, you're going, okay, there's, there's something to this that is not recognized in the academy. Well, particularly absolutely. in academia, that we don't acknowledge that that lived experience, the truth value that sits in, in day-to-day -day existence. And as academics or scholars, we think, oh, this is how it should be. Don't tell me what I'm doing. I study this. Exactly. Like if I took for the expectations that I take from, from lived experience of being an ambulatory wheelchair user, and I then go and in my infinite wisdom project that onto, say, the deaf community or blind and BI community, like just because like ambulatory wheelchair users are using identity first and are not going to use like a medically charged term, um, medically and socially charged term like handicap, does not mean that then a blind person usually saying VI or visually impaired, which is a much more common word used within that community. I think I'm, I can say that even as somebody who's, you know, peripherally yeah. or peripherally there we go on the edge of that like we can't project onto each other just like you know you and i've spoken off air as well about how um about how identity first language is perpetuated by a certain class of disabled people and that's cool that's becoming yeah. more and more people but as always mm -hmm. happens and has, has historically happened with wider disability discourse, where fortune has favored those who think in academic mindsets like you and I, and has left particularly yeah. the intellectual disability community behind. Because if our response to, hey, I use identity first, I use person first, well, here, you should read, even if it's the best glossary in the world. Are we engaging yeah. in good faith if we are presuming that 
academicalizing something is our best movement forward. If we're, you know, in terms of movement in all of its in all of its tones. And, yeah. and I'm not I'm not convinced that that conversation is happening. And part of that is because a lot of it's happening on oh, Twitter, no. which is like antithetical to nuance. Sure. Yeah. I mean, even if you write a thread, you can only fit so much in there. And now that apparently Elon Musk is taking over what Friday, Twitter's probably oh, gonna who knows? <laughs> explode from here. Who Back knows? and forth, eight different times. It'll be so great because it's really the only social media that I actually use. So it's like since that's gone, I'll be free again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I recently deleted Twitter. I, it's a little bit back on my phone now just because I had a suit. So um, folks that I was just talking to via DM, but, you know, a little while ago, I took Twitter off of my phone. And it was just like everything I saw in my feed was absurd in some kind of way. And uh, it really, really forces you to, I mean, it makes you look at the world in a very specific way. And people far smarter than either of us who've looked at this idea of just what social media actually does to our brain. And it's particularly because I think it does, while it's been beneficial for disabled communities, it does still keep people apart, right? And it's still, like you said, sort of forces a wedge in between communities that have more or less more or less are similar to each other and or have more similarities than differences and ultimately would do better by joining together than in infighting right and you know i wonder if because of how fast everything goes now if we if anybody has enough time to actually sit and think about any of this stuff, right? Like you and I, we get more or less paid to think about these things, right? And and we are probably more engaged. Like you said, if you poll disabled communities, you're going to get a whole bunch of different responses. And there's probably going to be a small subset of folks like us that are heavily engaged with the discourse. And then there's going to be people who have no clue because they just don't. And again, those may even be people who don't even consider themselves disabled at all, but are impacted by all of this. And then there's like a whole bunch of people in the middle who probably are just so focused on this stuff in their day-to-day life that it's like, what the fuck do they care what they're called as long as it's not, you know, hey, cripple, right? Like. As long as we're not at that level, it's sort of one of those parsing of the weeds things that. Well, you know, you know, uh, how not, do we, not to uh, yeah. not to poo-poo the book that brought us together as creative people, which you know, feel free to bring that up backwards. But it's not as if a disabled person who is pushing for survival, and that's the best that they can hope for, is survival, is lining up to buy that book on their wish list, nor would you or I expect them to. <laughs> right? No way. Not with, what, so, not with what that publisher is charging. Absolutely not. Oh, well. Um, it, it's... Which I won't name them because I'm no, still under okay. contract, so... <laughs> I, I understand. You'll probably end up cutting it out anyway. 
I, I, who and knows? I, some maybe I we'll leave that, it in. I'll leave that in your court. Yeah, I think that brings us yeah. though to our our first topic of the day. Yeah, which was about we were talking about does mutual aid enable or restrict upward mobility? And and the ethos for this, you know, as I was the annoying, uh, I use a reclaimed word. I was the annoying cripple that brought this topic up. Is that, you know, I, I forget the data. I don't have it in front of me, but a large majority of GoFundMe's, for example, are disabled mm-hmm. people, whether they conceive themselves as disabled or not, crowdfunding for medical support. And often this is a U.S.-centric conversation, but it's as true in Canada as it is as it is anywhere else, because our even our not even our but our our programs that provide limited equipment provide equipment has um, remarkable limitations. Some of them exceedingly frustrating. When the cost of a wheelchair van conversion is more than the cost of the vehicle originally, crowdfunding ends up existing. Some of these programs, including one of them in the province that I'm in the process of applying to to get a lift on the front of my house, require that you have exhausted crowdfunding before they'll give you any money. So you got to fillet yourself for trauma to prove that you're worth No working. shit. So really? What I mean by restricting upward mobility when I pose this very contrarian question, I suppose, is do we rely on mutual aid and in some ways, a reclaimed version of the charity model, not to get too model specific. Do we think that that restricts upward mobility because it's like, oh, the community will sort it out when it's that meme of five people passing the same dollar back and forth between each other? Like, to me, it doesn't yeah. strike me as mutual aid is needed and I'm engaged with it every day, but it, to me, it, it, can't, be, it can't be the only thing. And it feels like right now we're yeah. being pushed more and more towards it having to be the only thing. What do you think about that? Yeah, I I got lots of thoughts. <laughs> Let's see if I can make them coherent. I think you're right. I think in terms of it can't be the only thing because when I think of mutual aid or things like GoFundMe, I don't I don't think of like the big philanthropic galas where where people with exorbitant amounts of money come and donate to whatever cause. When I think of of mutual aid, and I've seen it not necessarily in the disabled community, but with stuff going on last what was it, last year, the year before, with all the freezing that we had down here and like the whole power grid shut down. There was like dozens of mutual aids that popped up and I donated, even though we didn't have much to give, but donated like 20 bucks to one of them so that somebody else who might have been struggling a little worse than we were or a little more than we were could maybe be a little bit better off. And I feel like with mutual aid, that's what it is. It's it's the people who are already suffering, like you said, passing the same dollar around, passing the same money. And it's it's not like... It can go a long way and it, it's a stopgap, right? It, it helps cover what should be covered in a functioning, progressive democracy or like modernized country. And it doesn't, right? It doesn't exist. And I, I blame capitalism as a start. I'll start there. 
and just put the whole blame on that. Because I I know Canada, you're a little bit better than we are, but in the U.S. we have nothing. Like, and our safety net is shrinking on the day. Like, I mean, there's a certain political party that is running on a platform that if they come to power, they'll literally hold the economy hostage to gut Medicare and Social Security and all those other things. Like all these other safety nets that at one point we said, hey, we should probably take care of the folks that are struggling in society. We should take care of the elderly. We should take care of retirees. We should take care of folks with disabilities who may need that extra support because, yeah, they can't work a typical job. And of course, these were all mostly put through in the 60s, 70s kind of era. And we didn't have telework from home. We didn't have, you know, the kind of advancements that we have, even though we're going in the opposite direction of all I mean, of that kind of stuff. I mean, the minimum wage was brought in in the U.S. as a back-to-work measure for, for veterans. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the connections to... I know there are people who disagree with me on this, to be fair. I don't want to portray this as like a community-held belief or something. But the the connections between the U.S. military complex and disability culture, as we understand it today in North America, are um, they are intrinsically linked in a number of problematic oh, ways. I mean, if you look at Parasport, a lot of the momentum from Parasport Regardless of whether we're looking at sport, the creation of sports like wheelchair basketball as a uh, on this side of the of the ocean, as well as Stoke Mandeville and that sort of parallel mm-hmm. growth, it's all it's all veterans related. You go to big big conferences. Um, I went to Pac Rim a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Felt like half the room half the room were academics, and the other half was voc- vocational rehab, like. These are are so intrinsically linked, and and you're right. It's intrinsically linked to capitalism. It's also in a you know this sort of bootstrapping idea. I mean, in a number of provinces up here, fair to say that the the especially in conservative provinces that they've started connecting. And this is not a new phenomenon for sure, but the yeah. same. The same, I'll call it affliction, <laughs> that that affects the um, programs that are supposed to keep you anybody, not not disabled people, not principally disabled people. The same issues that affect these programs that are like, here's our here's our stipend until you can get back into the workforce because you recently came off of the workforce, whether that's EI or something like Ontario Works in Ontario. Works. Yeah, we have disability having a different unemployment insurance of what yeah. it is. Well, a lot of these conservative provinces have started to make programs like in my province, SES, Saskatchewan Insured Income for Disability, a back to work problem, a back to work solution. When there are disabled people, and it's not a moral judgment, who cannot work. Forget yeah. forget like commonplace employment or things that we traditionally understand as employment. There are people, disabled people. That you know, as you and I both know, that cannot mm-hmm. work. And when we conceive of these programs as back to work problems, programs, we inherently are are leaving people behind because 
that's you know those folks have like they still belong in the ecosystem that is that is uh that is our lives and yeah i could say a lot about that and about the nonprofit complex and oh no yeah and you you brought up for me you brought up for me and i this thought that purely the existence of mutual aid gofundme i mean it's it's proof that the system isn't working if government is working if it's actually working for people then you wouldn't need ngos you wouldn't need nonprofits you wouldn't necessarily need mutual aid because people's situation would be taken care of and when i say capitalism i say i say capitalism because so much of our life so much of our i say like so so much of our actual life things that we like to do for pleasure joy rest general well-being healthcare food a roof like all of that is tied to a job and if you can't do a job then you're going to struggle to cover any of those other aspects and so again job can mean a lot of different things but at least in our present society it means most likely a production of something right where you and i get to pay get paid to write or get paid to do presentations or or do talks or things like that well some people get paid to be grocers and some people get paid to be manufacturers and some people are service industry but as you said there's some folks that can't do those jobs or they may not be able to do those jobs in a 40-hour work week every single week right and it, i mean i don't work 40 hours i work far more than 40 hours but i can tell you since the pandemic's happened it's gotten a lot harder to be able to just go sit in some space and do work for 8 hours my body was like gave it some freedom of like here this is go move and do things that are actually enjoyable and can so I, it's had to shift to yeah there? so of course you can no absolutely like no I, actually I you can with the mode here yeah you can yeah you know you mentioned you mentioned coming to your disability identity, um, you know, in the last five years or so. Yeah. How did that, how did that intersect with, you know, that sort of two years in, in disability identity, you know, coming to understand timeline is short. Yeah. So how did that intersect with then whatever year we're on, two and a half, three of, of the pandemic for you? I mean, it's like opening my brain and dumping a bunch of stuff in there, like all at one time, right? Like, <laughs> it's, it's just sort of everything got piled in there. Was, or maybe it was, I don't know, I've never taken psychedelic drugs yet, but I imagine it's, it was something along those lines, right? Of like you taking something and it just opening a door in your brain that's like, oh, that's, that's it. That makes a whole lot more sense, right? And, I think once that happened, well, I'll go back. I think the process of getting into it 
was starting to read, starting to be able to read more things that weren't, that didn't have to be academic. Mm. Going to school, like I, I came from a blue collar, middle-class family. You know, we had enough, like we say we had enough, right? We, there wasn't anything that we were wanting, but it's not like we were living in excess, right? We, we did well and my parents did well and, and everything. And in that setting, growing up in Michigan in the Midwest, it's very much like a get to it workers mentality, right? Like you just everybody, men, women, everyone in between outside, it's just, you get up, you go to work, you do your stuff and you take a lot of pride in what you do. Like, even if it's just a small task, you're raised to take pride in that kind of stuff. And so when you struggle or when you have difficulty doing that, you know, it cuts pretty deep, right? Like, oh, I must not be good enough. And then when you start when I started reading about disability, I, I came into it as an educator and honestly stumbled into the field of, of disability because I had kids with disabilities in my PE class. And I was like, why do they move differently? And that's where I started. And of course, reading as an academic, you again, it's like fishing through an ocean. You just start pulling up whatever's there and, you know, it, it's a lot. But once I was done with that, and once I was, I finished the dissertation and started my first job, I was always an independent researcher when I was doing this stuff. I led a lot of the projects during my doctoral studies. But once I got out, I no longer had, I no longer had bumpers, right? Like there, there, there were no longer like lane guides on what topics I could get engaged with. Yeah, so I could start reading. And so I started reading more and more stuff from advocates, from from disabled folks themselves, from writers. Like, I mean, I found Alice Wong's stuff and started reading from Sins Invalid and in all these different other organizations. And I started really, I mean, digging into academically what's considered disability studies, right? Or, but like, actually enveloping myself in, into a whole other movement. And during that time, I was also going through quite a bit of personal change, right? I mean, we've, my wife and I have moved across country a few times, but there's a lot of stuff going on. And I was just struggling a lot. And thankfully, I started seeing a therapist during my doctoral degree but it's something I've kept doing, as all of us probably should. But recognizing that, that disability was a part of myself, but it didn't define anything necessarily. So it, it gave me a bit more confidence. And as I was using those terms or referring to myself in that way, or and recognizing that a lot of my own experiences are through that lens. And it's probably also due 
to the fact that the work I was engaging with on a scholarly level was much more qualitative. And so it was far more reflexive. So as a qualitative researcher, you as the researcher are a part of whatever project you're doing. There's, There's an intimate connection with the data that you generate or create that's different from qualitative research, not in a bad way or anything. It's just procedurally different. And so as I was engaging with this scholarly work, it also forced me to, I mean, be really, really be internally reflective of everything that was going on. And one of the fascinating things about ADHD and probably something, well, something I learned that benefited me in the long term of my entire academics was that I can hyper-focus on stuff I really like to do or that really captures my attention. So when I start reading on some, something, as long as it's on target, right? If, <laughs> if it's reading articles that are about a paper I'm doing, I could focus on that for six, eight hours straight and literally do nothing else. More often than not, it's usually jumping down a rabbit hole that has nothing to do with the actual work I'm doing. Was it the other day I just went on a, just a spree of, I was looking up. Oh yeah, it was the new Apple software that came out. And I was just like, for no real good reason at all, I was just like reading article and article and article of, of, here's all the new things that you can do with your update. And it's like, I spent like two hours just reading those things straight because that's what my mind was fixated on. So ultimately, I think it was a a mix, right? As you say, how I got into this and it was kind of a rapid you know, way of identity shift. That I think really helped. But I think the pandemic too itself caused a lot of people to be reflective of their lives and what was considered normal or not normal. And so, yeah, that was a journey. <laughs> it was a trip. It's still going on. Yeah, absolutely. But I gave a TED Talk kind of about it. So, you know, you I've hit the peak, <laughs> peak levels I yeah. can get. So, And I think sometimes for me, you know, you bring up that hyper-focusing. I think sometimes it's the it's the the only time that I wish I could turn the disability lens off is when wow. I am when I am intersecting with some media and I actually don't want to be doing some disability justice analysis in the background. Like I'll be listening to yeah. oh, it admittedly it is a for a story eventually for the newsletter, but just thinking about um how a lot of productivity, you know, there's this huge spike in productivity, YouTube. And I go in these spots where I'm like, yeah, I'm going to create the perfect morning routine, blah, 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 blah. And then CP begins to laugh at me from wherever, whatever, you know, brain damaged mm-hmm. part it's laughing from that day. Um, but then some of that content's really useful. But then you're sitting there and you're like, oh, that, that's. Yep. If it's not ableist, it's ableist. It's ableism adjacent, or like it could ableism see, light. Yeah, ableism, but the the trial version. 
Yeah, it's diet. Yeah, yeah, diet ableism, <laughs> uh, which in yeah. itself is its own form of ableism. Look at that. So we should put some, we should put some uh, that on some merch. I think ableism adjacent. <laughs> Your point is ableism yeah. adjacent. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that you know sometimes that unpacking. I think what we don't, and this is maybe a bit of a diatribe that we end up cutting. It reminds me of the fact that we don't, when we teach self-advocacy, we often teach it as a form of survival rather than thriving. And so I think one of the ways that the Twitter discourse falls down is that when we, as people who end up teaching self-advocacy to people, because disability elders seem to start being elders when they're like 26 because of the history of this community, we don't often do a good job of teaching like, no, you can look at something that is inherently ableist and decide for yourself if, if you can crip that up a bit. If there's something that you can actually take value from, like I take value from finding Notion as a tool. I get that from productivity YouTube. But do I believe that time blocking is going to work with my neurodivergent brain or my physical body that doesn't? can't even be bothered to let me wake up at the same time every day, let alone, you know, time blocked to all hell. Oh, yeah. I find that was so much worse for my ADHD because <laughs> I get stressed if I like if I couldn't start. Like, I tried time blocking. And it was just like if I didn't start whatever that was, then I get super stressed and then it would just ruin everything else because, of course, then in my ADHD brain, I'm like, Life's something in four hours. There's absolutely no way that I can possibly start and finish anything in that time frame. So I just don't do anything. And it, it just is. <laughs> it's the completionist part of our brain going to war with the neurodivergent oh, yeah. part of our brain. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think this has interesting parallels because, you know, I fundamentally believe that there is, there is a limit to self-advocacy. Just like there is a limit to the amount of models of disability we can talk about amongst ourselves as a community before, like, you can't, you can't model yourself out of an ableist apocalypse. Um, you need to take value from those. Again, I'm not trying to plug my newsletter, but I, I did an interview with uh, somebody about stabilism, the idea that, you know, there's a particular form of, of uh, disparagement going on when there is that disconnect. Um, between different versions yeah. of basically the privilege of feeling centered in your disability identity and, and you know, having privileges like a diagnosis can can reflect badly when you're trying to prescribe, say, bad advice to somebody that's outside of, you know, like if I was to give you bad ADHD advice and just presume that I'm right because I also identify as disabled, it's not, it's not going to help you, is yeah. it really? Or it has the potential to do harm, realistically, which sort of brings us to our second topic, I guess, which, you know, speaking about inspiration. Natural. A natural yeah, segue. You're the, you're the king of the natural segues on this. <laughs> there we go. I love it. There we go. Because uh, we were looking at speaking about inspiration porn. Thank you. Um, we'll give our flowers to uh, the late, great Stalian. When we talk Absolutely. about inspiration porn, stating our stating our relations as the term would go. So, and speaking of impactful TED talks as well, and how small the community is, that I know at least one of the Stella Young Award 
winners in, in Australia. Looking at inspiration porn in, in media coverage, because that's the opposite of the Fetterman discourse, right? Is that if we mm-hmm. were putting Fetterman up as a like, he has overcome his stroke to do a wonderful job if the if the uh, debate yesterday had gone a different direction. From right. a from a and not necessarily a disability academic space, perhaps, but from a, from a like your lived experience in and around conversations around you know adaptive recreation slash access in sport slash what does movement mean in a disability space? How do you view of inspo porn? Oh goodness, <laughs> it's I mean it's everywhere, right? Like it's. I mean, once it's one of those things, once you see it and once you know what it is, then it's like everything becomes that, right? Like it, like you were saying that earlier, that you'd be, it'd be nice if there were occasions when I didn't look through the world in that lens. <laughs> and it's just like, every time I see something, it's like, ah, God, mm. <laughs> it's like, and I get it. I mean. Particularly around sport, I think the media generally portrays athletes as inspirational, right? Like in, in just general discourse, like when we see things of professional athletes, when we see the Williams sisters, when we see LeBron, when we see all these major sport athletes, it, it is inspirational, right? Like you look at what they do and you go holy shit, like, there's no way I would ever be able to do that. And, like, I've gone, I got to see Tiger Woods play golf, and I I will (laughs) put aside everything on the personal side, because I just, that's too big of a hornet's nest to get into any of that. But it's, even with all that shit, it's hard to deny that that man is a really good golfer. (laughs) And when you see him golf, and you watch, like, I got to watch him tee off. And I mean, if anybody's, if you've watched golf on TV, it's like, it's no comparison to watching it in person of just this, you know, I would, he's a musk, like he's an athletically fit dude, but just to go up there and hammer a golf ball, like 400 yards, it's like, that is pretty inspirational. And I think disabled athletes do inspirational things, right? Like we've, I, um, I follow Aaron Wheels. Right on Instagram and doing a backflip over semis in a wheelchair or with a bike or anything, that's freaking inspirational because that's a crazy task. <laughs> and I know crazy is a horrible word to use for it, but that's just, it's sensational. Like it's a sensational thing that somebody's doing. So when we think about inspiration porn in the way that Stella and I use like I know Stella Young on a first-name basis. <laughs> but when we think of how she put it forward, that type of inspiration, I wouldn't consider inspiration porn. Like seeing the newsreels of Aaron doing a backflip to see his Hot Wheel car that he has, I don't see that as inspiration porn. You know, it still may be using the image for the consumption and objectification for another group, right? I mean, we put athletes up on a pillar and the rest of the world looks on to them for that consumption, right? Like we 
buy their likenesses, we buy their jerseys, they are, we expect that they are, you know, welcoming to fans in every aspect of their yeah. existence. But at least for most non-disabled athletes, they still maintain some element of power because they're, of course, pulling in riches off of, at least many of them, off of this kind of stuff. So there's sort of a leveling here. And I think with inspiration porn, it's really when we're using that marginalized group to make the other group feel better about themselves. And in a physical activity setting, that's showing a wheelchair user doing whatever activity, just yeah. as um, Stella says, like just <laughs> you're, you're saying they're inspirational for literally doing everyday stuff. Yeah. It, I mean, inspiration porn is a framing device as opposed to an action, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, to put it in another way, former teammates of mine who are now on the national team and far, you know, went way further in Paris sport than I ever did. You know, yeah. I don't think of those people as, I mean, partially it's because I know them, right? When when you know somebody on a first name basis, is it what other people view as inspirational, you just view as the thing that that person does. You know, is, is, is Zach Medell, I'll pick on Zach. Well, by some counts, the best wheelchair rugby player in the world. Is Zach Medell inspirational because he's a quad NPC? Or is Zach Medell inspirational in the same sense that, as you mentioned, you know, these sports folks of, of various descriptions in every sport where what's, it, I guess it's the difference between inspirational and aspirational, right? Is it inspirational because, hey, that's a cool thing that they're doing and they are an incredible athlete full stop? versus the inspiration point of, wow, he's an incredible athlete. How the hell did he get his shoes on this morning? The, the latter part, I don't care about, quite frankly. And, and you know, there, may, there is that aspect of inspiration porn or inspiration from a, from a quad to a quad or whatever, right? From an athlete to an athlete. Like, it can be inspirational when it's within that particular identity. I think oh, in sure. Parasport, and some people would disagree with me, but I think in Parasport, Part of the problem is that a lot of these organizations are not led by disabled people. And even when they are led by disabled people, they are led by disabled people who are not, generally speaking, in these disability justice intersectional conversations. They can be sometimes. I, I would argue folks like Steph Wheeler at the University of Illinois, totally within that um, intersectional, intersectional space. But again, tied to a university. So, you know, that happens. When you're around those spaces long enough, I think. But yeah, a, a lot of these, you know, I, the thing that comes up a lot in the scholarship, but also just in regular conversation, is, you know, London 2012 Paralympics had one of the biggest spikes of interest, right? It's why you have things like The Last Leg on British television. But the ad campaign for that was called We Are the Superhumans. From a disability justice perspective, that's like, oh, here we go, right? Um, and there's been research that, that when people follow up, those kinds of campaigns don't actually, going back to this analogy of like, you know, who's in at the baseline foundational level, there have been studies that show that it doesn't actually increase the baseline level that society views disabled people in the same way that, you know, studies of um, LeBron James being a great athlete, because I guess that's just the name that comes to mind. If you pull the country, that doesn't mean that they have a better view of Akron. Right. There, there is that there is that disconnect. And then 
you know, some of the work that I did, I think might have been the story that connected the two of us that I did for Rooted in Rights, sees that. Yeah, I think it was. A lot of disabled athletes see the inspiration porn as a means to an end. They may not frame it for that themselves, but if you're within that world, that's better for many of those athletes than the alternative, which is going back to being known as, oh, isn't, aren't they just a cute cripple in the corner? How tragic. Oh, they get to, I mean, we still have high school athletes in the U.S. suing their school division so that they can compete. It's not as if the baseline level of entry has gotten all that much better. Oh, no. No, definitely not. And probably worse in some instances and in many places. And cough, it, cough, there is an ac- Cawthorn, cough. <laughs> yeah. And there's, I mean, there's academic research on the, the idea you were talking about of what was the, the ad campaign for the Paralympics? Oh, we, we are, are super, we are, superhumans. We are superhumans. And then I forget yeah. what the follow up one, the C4 is one in 2016 was, yes, we can sort of in, in, Somewhat in the Stealing same. from Obama, yeah. It, wor- it worked for him, I guess. Um, but there is a term called supercrip or even cyborg. And I mean, it's, it is really tied to those with physical impairments who might use mobility aids. But it is, it's often, at least this, this line in academic work, where the non-disabled view of those athletes is, one wow, look how much they overcame what they did. And then two, it's, oh, they must have been able to do it because they are are somehow enhanced because of their mobility aid, right? They've, they've got this superhuman characteristic. They've, they've, their body story is that they're no longer disabled, abled. They're somehow in between. <laughs> and because, of course, the non-disabled community can't look at parasport as and watch it for the sport. We have to watch it to go, oh, look, look at these people. Look at they're just going around the court. They're having such a good time. Look at them. It's so great. Yeah, they're, they're doing it to ogle, right? Exactly. And I don't know. I mean, what brought me to this topic, what wanted me to talk about this topic was U.S. women's national soccer team, Carson Pickett, she has a below-the-elbow amputee, uh, amputation. And I don't know much about her or any of her potential identity politics, but as somebody with a visible disability, as such as an amputation, I would assume she's at least engaged at somewhat of a level of all these topics. But there is a video uh, that I caught maybe a day or two after they announced she was playing with the team. And it was her meeting a, a little girl who's maybe, I don't know, three, four, five, kind of that young childhood age. She also had a below the elbow amputation. And it was them getting to meet each other. And the little girl, of course, touched uh, her amputation, uh, Carson Pickett's amputation. And it was just, a, it was a very, very sweet moment. And like you said, with that disability lens in my head, as I'm watching this video, there's a part of me, there's the disabled part of me that's going, oh, how sweet, this is great, like, that's representation. And then there's the scholar side of me that's going, who is this video for? And how is this being viewed by those without amputations? Like, 
yes, that, that video should absolutely happen and it should be there. But when people have that reaction of, oh, look at that, I don't know, it starts, that's that fuzzy diet ableism and inspiration porn, right? Well, it's like, is it, is it centered, exactly as you said, is it, is it centered on the abled gaze, if we were going to use the, uh, the academic term? You know, and also you brought up the term cyborg. You know, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, because you're in literature a lot more than I am. But cyborg started to be attributed to two folks, like speaking of sportsmen who have done horrible things, uh, Oscar Pistorius. But now we're seeing it being reclaimed in a more social sense. I don't want to speak over or speak, you know, uh, speak over these people because I do happen to know them. But folks like uh, Jillian Faiso, who I've worked with previously, um, Amy Gaita, uh, Ace Tilton Ratcliffe, all talking about cyborgs as as device. Uh, Jillian had a piece in, in the New York Times that could speak to it much better than what I could write. Cy, um, cy as a pronoun, even a neo pronoun, and like how how those identities traverse these sort of. This sound very academic of me. Apologies, listeners, but. Uh, traverse these these spaces between these two things where, you know, I think we see the same thing when we see parents posting, n- non-disabled parents, to be clear, posting, like, videos of their disabled kids' joy. And, like, a lot of those kids, I'm not going to, like, pathologize them, but a lot of them seem to have CP or something similar my experience and and it's like i i do wonder what what my family would have done if if this was more available to them especially when there's so much pressure to perform that disability to get support with 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 diagnosis being a means to an end for a lot of people yeah even just the pressures of of having to perform in the social contexts right that that social media forces you to do where parents may feel a necessity to have to show these, I guess, inspiration, porny move, you know, and it's, that sounds yeah. like maybe we should talk some, some other term for when we're talking about kids. But like <laughs> when, when parents share these videos is, you know, is it also just this, hey, look at my life isn't as bad as maybe others might assume it would from yeah, the outside. It, it, it's framing, and I, I think that these social media spaces don't allow for the nuance of like, hey, I, my kid, even something as simple as, hey, my kid wanted this posted. <laughs> like, they're yeah. super excited to be able to go down these stairs, and, and I get it, but, you know, I get that this may not be the best thing in the world, but, but oftentimes, as we see, you brought up the autistic community earlier, that level of conversation is not often happening. It's often not happening at all uh, because, I mean, how many, I've mentioned those conferences before, how many conferences, maybe I, maybe I am the lone, the lone wolf in this regard, but how many have we gone to where folks come up to you and their relation to disability is that their kid was quite disabled and they wrote a book? <laughs> no, I'm... I've had that conversation many times where I'm like, sorry, I am not your audience. I think as a scholar, I think there's there's plenty of instances uh, where researchers do work on communities where they are no way involved very well and very badly. 
And I think for some time when I was going through my stuff and trying really sorting through my identity, I started to notice that a, a lot of the work in my particular discipline was not from a perspective of a disabled person, nor was there a disabled scholar, at least outwardly, right? Someone who identifies. I've no idea uh, anybody's diagnosis or any of that, but just outwardly, very, very few, very rare. And it's no wonder we still struggle with a lot of these things. And it's really no wonder that we can't find common agreement on a lot of these things, right? And just in terms of maybe we shouldn't do this for this reason. Again, like you said, the nuance, the the subtleties that are there. And I mean, for as much, for as, as much as, as particularly those very, very hardcore disability justice advocates for as, for as much as any of them talk about disability pride or, you know, are like, don't stigmatize disability. I don't think any of them would make a statement or, or would not agree that there's also not stuff that sucks that comes with having a disability. Right. Like my, my phrasing is usually that I can love my diagnosis without loving my symptoms. I can love my lived experience. I, like I can love disability being central to my identity because it informs everything that I do without. And I I always joke around that I have, you know, I have one pity party a year. Um, I give myself one day where I, I dream of an able future for myself. And I'm, I've done that since I was a kid. Not that it's the one, the only day that it happens, but like I, I have been known to put it on my calendar. Nice. Well, I think everybody's <laughs> got to have their thing, right? Even if it is sort of a little, uh, 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 what's the word? Not morbid, macabre. That's what I'm yeah. looking for. A little, little bit macabre. Well, and I think what you and I are, are coming to, right, is this idea that there's no perfect way to be crip. There's no perfect way to do disability justice because my... The, the even from a from an activism point of view, the strategies that work where you are in Texas, with a governor who has argued against the ADA, remarkably paradoxically, are different from the strategies that might work in Saskatchewan, are radically different from what might work in Vancouver, Toronto, where you grew up in Michigan. There is no perfect way to be crip. There are some central tenets, but when we're talking about movement, I often see this in the the divide between disabled athletes and disabled artists. It's not that they don't see each other as disabled. It's not even that in some cases they don't see themselves as within disability justice. They just see themselves often as oppositional forces in the same way that that non-disabled sports folks and artists often see themselves in in some kind of competition for the same funds, I think because they're both by some people seen as frivolous on either side. Sure. I, I would argue, you know, a lot of the disability justice folks, when we talk about disability culture, for example, it's often directly tied into it, like the first part of call is artists. That's when we're talking about disability justice, we are talking about we're talking about Crip Camp. Sure. Documentary. We're we're also talking about um, uh, artists like Patrick Cuppers, speaking of Michigan. <laughs> we're talking about all these things. My argument has always been that Disabled athletes are also part of disability culture. They just often imbue this with a massively problematic lens of not necessarily thinking through 
the barrier to, well, everybody can compete and not actually filtering that through a justice lens. And um, there are folks, including in that story that I did, that that are that are um, unpacking that. You know, T. Pierce has been unpacking that for a very long time. There are folks doing that work. But but there there is that divide there that that I still I I'm heartened to see it becoming less and less. But I'd be ridiculous to say it's not still there. And I think it's perpetuated by by both sides. Again, this well, I'm not like them. Well, okay, just because one person puts a basketball in a hoop and the other one writes poetry doesn't mean that they don't have the same shared end. But we stop it. Oh, they use person first. So I'm yeah, just I think it's them. a scarcity mindset. Right. Like it, it's it's a part of this. Well, you've fought for so long to get what you've got. And so you're not going to give it up for anybody else. Right. I think that for my, many, many movements that have existed, not just disability, but we think of any sort of civil rights group that's advocated for <laughs> general humanity, the way it's perceived is, well, it's a pie. Well, if they get that, then what am I losing? Rarely ever do we look at it, well, we're all fighting over just these bare scraps. What about those folks over there who's, who they have most all of the pies? I, there's enough to go around. I'm curious what you think of, of this, this statement, I guess you could say. Like, I'm curious if it is a carryover from this, this conflict that we have in sort of non-disabled activism spaces where in a lot of places in the world, and it's even true in Saskatchewan, so that's why I feel okay to make a generalized statement, that direct action, meaning like in, um, in-person versions of direct action, are often held up as the gold standard of activism. And I wonder, sure. like, we we certainly have that in our community. We have, you know, the ADA doesn't exist without the Capital Crawl. It doesn't exist without ADAPT. It doesn't exist without the Black Panthers. It doesn't exist without the independent living movement of the 70s, both in Canada and the U.S. These things don't, these things don't happen without direct action. But I, I do wonder if we, if we can call it we in this sort of disability justice space, still absentmindedly create those divides, even though we know that intrinsically that people can still do activism at home. Mm-hmm. Like being on Twitter is still yeah. a form of activism. There, there are these yeah. things. I'm curious your thoughts on on how disability justice splits up what movement means when it comes to these sort of arbitrary versions of what activism looks like. That's a huge question, John. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> another... like we've been talking for a while. That's we might fair. have to save this for That's another fair. podcast. That's fair. But That's what editing's for. I mean, yeah, I think because I listened to a, another podcast. Uh, about this idea and they said a statistic that was I had of course I haven't vetted it but it was something along the lines of when they've done you know sort of historical retrospective work on looking at those historical movements right the ones you just talked about they were by their standards something like 70 percent effective or something you know like and I'm vaguely remembering that the way they measured effectiveness was was along the lines of getting legislation passed, you know, changing policy, whatever, right? Sure. They, for the most part, groups in the 60s, 70s, they, whatever they set out to change, they got changed. And this, this person was mentioning that as time has gone on, and particularly with social media, 
these movements have been able to be bigger. They've grown, but they've become less effective, right? Like they're something like five or 10% effective now. And it was this idea of because they're, at least in their sort of hypothesis, because there's no direct action, that it's really hard to keep momentum pushing forward. I mean, if we look at, I mean, even the Me Too movement, right? Like probably one of the outside of BLM, sort of one of the bigger, I guess, movements of the last few years that for most extents and purposes was started and, and done online, right? Just through a shared hashtag. And, and it's where it started. That's sort of where it perpetuated. And yeah, there were, you know, the Women's March in DC and there, there were these sort of physical protests. But what's really changed beyond a few men, not many, but a few men having some accountability, right? I think Harvey Weinstein is serving 23 and he's still in, I guess, trials just started again. But you look at comedians like, uh, what's his name? Uh, Chappelle? See, well, there's Chappelle, but um, that was for transphobia. And, but uh, C.K. Lewis? Louis, is that Louis right? C.K., yeah. Louis C.K., that's it. Shows how much I actually care about him. But you know, he threw a whole big fit, and he was out for like two months of not doing gigs, and now is is back on and like i of course saw it on the the timeline of one point he was giving one of his stand-ups and it had become a part of his act <laughs> like yeah. now he's just openly joking about sexual harassment and doing these things so it's like so what's changed and so no, i struggle with that a lot because like we wouldn't have an understanding of neurodiversity if we didn't have the in-live chat room, like groups and, and space to exist. Like those neurodivergent folks would never have come together in person, let alone, and some of them may have not even been able to communicate in a way that in-person meeting would have been beneficial, but that medium offered a collective group. And so, I don't know, it's really hard because I think you do need both. Right. Because unfortunately, our system still operates in a very draconian fashion. Like the way most of our governments work in pure bureaucracy, it just it takes so much time to change anything. And if you're a politician who has lobbyists in every ear, like you're not going to do anything for just a small group of folks in your constituency who are maybe making a little noise, but not sitting in your office for 45 days, like the 504 sit-ins, right? And, and no amount of tweeting <laughs> or DMing a politician is really going to change their mind on anything. And I know that's a bit nihilistic, though. I, I do wonder, and I haven't. I, I know which study you're talking about, but I, I also sort of briefly glanced at it, so I won't claim to you know know everything about it. I do wonder if our metrics of success in certain parts of disability community have shifted. I do wonder, and this is just anecdotal, but I do wonder as as those there will always be people fighting for the ADA. I mean, we have. 
that the shouting down that caused the Supreme Court challenge from one of the medical providers was that last year. We're seeing a similar one go through the process that will have a similar shouty uh, approach coming forward. You know, some disability advocates have spoken publicly about the fact that a lot of the reasons that some of these things haven't made it to the Supreme Court is that they're worried that that gutting will happen. Oh, for uh, sure. If they push I know there's hard. tons of people. Yeah, there's tons of people who are like, because the, re, at least in the U.S., we have the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, right, IDEA. And it's supposed to be reauthorized every five years, as most legislation is, but they haven't reauthorized it since 2004. And there's a bunch of people who are like, don't even bring it up because if it's brought up, they're just going to, the way the political system is now, like they're just going to take a hatchet job to it and just destroy it. And so it's a matter of, again, I think that scarcity model and also very much a reactory model. Like I don't see a lot of proactiveness among at least scholarly movements in terms of disability rights, disability justice. It's often very reactory, right? How do we fix this? This is coming down the pipe. How do we address that? And it's less of, well, we're going to fight for these things, right? We're going to fight, like we're going to have a pillar of, or a set of items we're going to fight for because that's what we need. I think we, we have relied on incrementalism for a very long time. And it's the radical side of me, John, that like looks at that and, and goes, it's great. I mean, I don't think there's a person who could argue successfully that people aren't better off today than they were 50, 60 years ago when institutions were the were primary place for most people with a disability, right? And very generously. And now, folks, I mean, we have tools in there. We have, at least in America for now, we have free and appropriate education, meaning no student can be turned away from public education for any reason, disability included. And before that, Kids with disabilities were excluded from public schools because the school would say, we don't have the ability, we don't have the things we need, the tools to provide education to this person successfully, so they can't come here. Now it just happens passively. Exactly. Right now yeah, they don't it, hire teachers. And, and I, 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 do, I do wonder, though, like I agree with you in a way. I, I also wonder if the reason, especially in these academic spaces, which you and I run in occasionally, uh, you more than me. I, I run in them occasionally. I do wonder if part of that is because the proactive stuff for so much of us is keeping our circle of people safe. Oh, sure. Like, I, I, I think the proactivity of making, like, knowing that when your friend says something in a DM, you know the difference between they might not want to tell you that they're in crisis, but they are, and your energy goes there in this mutual aid network. And so the only things that feel doable are the things that are these broader, broader changes. I mean, like I said earlier, I wonder if if the metrics is what is what is kind of uh, um, broken here. I think that maybe it's I know in the U.S. 
this is rampant, Indivi- you know, the rugged individualism we have down here. You do a little bit better up there in, in the in the Canada area. But I think this idea of putting it, literally everything is an individual problem, at least in American society. You can't feed yourself Well, you're not working hard enough, right? If you're having these issues where you're not doing enough, instead of recognizing that we live in a society together for a reason, at least that was the intent. <laughs> if we were all if we were all supposed to be individuals, well we would have all lived individually. We would have lived away from each other, but we decided, hey, we can do better if we group up because we don't have to work as hard, right? I if if we are in a collective, right? If we are in a union to use that term, we can rely on ourselves in a way that it doesn't it isn't just mutual aid right it isn't just day to day things you take a little bit pressure off of everybody because it's somebody's job to do those things or advocate for you or to make sure the system is working and government's supposed to do that too right but it obviously fails and for me again because my radical side is slowly, slowly taking up space in my body. When I look at incrementalism, it can only go so far, right? If we have built up an oppressive system, right, a system that disadvantages disabled bodies, that no matter whatever band-aid we keep applying to that, the fact is, is we're still in the exact same environment. No matter how many ramps we put in or elevators we build or closed captionings we provide, we still exist in a society that is not meant for that. And so, well, if I was for me, be a, it's sorry, start over, I'm, right? Right. No, I was just going to say, burn it me, down, start over. Uh, what, does, what does Gabriel Peters say? If it isn't, if it's ableist, burn it down? Something like that. Canadian disability advocate. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I mean, the, the pessimistic side of me says that what disability justice is at its core is harm reduction and harm reduction is incremental even if we think about it in the most baseline of ways even if we think about it in terms of what we traditionally think of harm reduction as which is you know say somebody having a noxalone kit and administering it so you identify that's incremental, that this is happening. You apply the noxalone, you get them into the recovery position, you call for help. You, If you're in a policing state like we are in North America, you keep those people at a distance. If there's a service animal involved, you make sure that that is still central to the thing. You check for medical bracelets. Even the incremental is knowing the Good Samaritan laws in the state or province that you are in, because even in Canada, they they differ. That's all That's all incremental. It's not incremental in the same way as I think we broadly conceive of it, but incremental is, is sort of the language of these sort of these sort of these sort of movements. And then I also think that we bump into this generational thing where we're disability community is still hitting a hell of a lot of firsts. Not that other marginalized communities aren't, but we I said it earlier, right? Our elders are twenty five. I'm not part of this community, so I'm not going to overstep, especially when the Venn diagram is so linked. But, you know, two LGBTQ communities are having the same conversations about this, about, you know, of, of, for various reasons. 
many known that that the eldership title ends up early and our elder a number of our disability elders who are in the traditional elder space are tired and they're allowed to be tired and and they're allowed to hold on to the notions that made them survive the 60s and 70s it's not to say that that generation isn't doing radical work you know we just saw the outpouring after uh paul spooner's death in massachusetts like there are folks doing this work, but I don't think that our communities have been around long enough in the public sphere to have unpacked for ourselves what that intergenerational conversation has in the way that, say, the labor movement, I would argue, has just had 200 years more time to talk about how different generations of labor movements intersect with each other and can disagree with each other and work towards the same aim. Sure. We're just, I mean, like you said, 60 years ago, we were being left on doorsteps on many of us. <laughs> it doesn't, you know, we're, we're, which I've brought us a hell of a long way from inspiration porn, but uh, the joys of having me as a co-host, I guess. Yeah. We've traveled a ways on this first episode on script, which doesn't exist, as well as <laughs> off script. But I think it's been good. I hope people have enjoyed listening. If you have, let us know. It won't always be us, though. Well, it, John, it's not just going to be us chatting each other. We're going to try. We're going to try. We're going to see what we can do, because at this point, we don't have sponsors. Neither of us, I would say, have a whole lot of fluid income to pay people <laughs> to come to invite. We don't have really producers outside of ourselves, so there's no fact-checking. There's no stuff coming in here. We're doing the work. So we will... We know some folks, though. So we will bring in some people to talk that isn't just John and I about uh -huh. some of these topics. Politicians, musicians, athletes, journalists, regular folks. I mean, I we want to hear from everybody. If there's anything you want to hear from, you let us know. I don't think... Do you want to do Crip of the Week, John? Do we want to finish on that? Sure. So do you have somebody? If you give me a moment, I, I will. Yeah, as you said, Andy and I came up with this idea of, uh, of a recurring segment where we talk about our, our Crip of, of the Week. I think it's fair to say that this doesn't mean that the person necessarily has to identify as Crip. Um, but Crip as yep. sort of a, a, an identity towards disability justice and and, and reclaiming um, uh, reclaiming that for sure. Um, and then sometimes maybe we'll have an anti-Crip of the week. Yeah, I'm already thinking of an anti-Crip. I don't know. You that go. might be who's, mine who's, today. Who's the anti-Crip of the week, Andy? All right. Well, I'm only using him. I haven't seen anything out of out of him this week yet, but since we've not chatted about this before, I feel okay using him. And that's my unfortunate, well, unfortunate for me, my current governor, Greg Abbott, who is himself a wheelchair user, although I do not believe he identifies with disability nor any type of disability justice movement. And there's a lot of things that I could pick from that would make him the anti-crip of the week. But the thing that's really under my skin right now is back when Roe came about 
the decision came down, he had tweeted out that he tweeted out his intention to challenge the free and appropriate education standard that it was established, you know, under Ford, a fellow Republican. And it's, for those of you who don't know what FAPE is, a free appropriate education, it's, it's essentially the mandate that any public school in the United States has to provide a free and appropriate education to every single person that is in their city, district, town, whatever. So not just disabled kids, but those who are here undocumented or really any other thing that could keep kids from school, right? We, we can't keep them out. We can't say girls shouldn't go to school. We can't say that queer kids can't be at school, right? For no particular reason. They're here. They live in the area. They go to that public school. And so his challenging of it is, one, super racist, because from his angle, I see he's challenging it because they don't want to offer education to undocumented kids who are here for no other reason than their parents brought them, <laughs> but we're not going to educate them. Yet, it would have a huge cascading effect onto the disabled community, because as soon as a school does not have the mandate to have to provide this piece of education, then you start to lose out on any of the legal mandates for things like individual education plans or transition plans or family service plans or the things that schools have to do, well, the things that we have to put into a document to make sure that they are done, right? You would hope that good education and good practice happens naturally, but unfortunately we know it doesn't because we live in a legal <laughs> legalistic society. We have to have everything in writing and everything documented so that we know what standard to keep people up on. So. I am really hoping that in two weeks he loses to Better O'Rourke. But I know that this is just one tip of an iceberg, and I don't think people really understand that, that the challenging of fate would cause just this cascading issue down the road. So I'm not going to talk about it anymore. He's no, probably going to be featured regularly on this show, but yeah, he's yeah. my anti-crypt. I think the only the only addition that I would have to that before we go is that Greg Abbott's the Cawthorns of the world. It's I think it's this conversation that we're having in the disability community more and more of this understanding that people, when they conceive of themselves as one thing, will bet against their own interests in another because they don't conceive of themselves as part of that identity or not one of, quote unquote, those disabled people or are far enough away from that formative experience that they have chosen and fair enough that they want to do this, I suppose, from a particularly from a mental health perspective. That was the before me. And that you can't count on somebody's identity automatically informing their politics. We see this over and over and over again. We could pick, you know, a person from many marginalized communities. I'm not going to do that because I only come from one. I tangentially am an immigrant, but I was born with the citizenship, so I'm not. I don't feel qualified to speak there. But folks will will bet against what we perceive as being their interests because it sure. is 
it is either in political office, it's advantageous to them, or they just don't conceive of themselves in that way. You know, Cawthorn, speaking of another Republican, has regularly said that he is not disabled. You know, he's a wheelchair yeah, that user. wonderful video. Yeah, wonderful video of him punching a tree. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just like we were, I'll speak for wheelchair users a little bit in that. Mm-hmm. I think many of us, not all of us, but many of us who were born with a disability, Cawthorn wasn't, neither was Abbott, I don't think, but, or no, got it fairly young, Cawthorn got his fairly young, that there is, there is a period uh, that you go through of not conceiving your, often that you go, I'm not disabled, I just have brain damage, right? It, it's just whether we are given the supports and the understanding to work to work through that in a way that isn't inherently ableist. And unfortunately, in those rehab settings, um, you know, oh, my love to OTs and, and, and people who are doing it right. But those settings are inherently medical model. The medical model isn't evil just because it's the medical model. But it does, it does portray a certain healing narrative, particularly in some of these recreational spaces that are, that, that have, I won't name them because that would feel ill put. Well, I, maybe we can talk about them off camera, which ones I'm thinking about, but that are mm -hmm. oriented towards walking as the eventual and only goal. Um, and, oh, that's, yeah. and that's sure. the world that Abbott and, and Cawthorne, Cawthorne come out of. In. 100%. We're going to definitely talk about that again, I'm sure. So, <laughs> yeah. John, it's been lovely talking with you, as always. I hope everybody enjoyed. And uh, we'll see you in two weeks, right? That's our plan, anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Bye, everyone. See you, John. Today's sponsor is KitCaster. Did you know that podcasts are a great way to grow your personal and business brand voice? Here's a secret. We all want to feel connected to the brands we buy from. And what better way to humanize a brand than through sharing your story on a podcast? KitCaster is a podcast booking agency that specializes in developing real human connections through podcast appearances. If you're an expert in your field, have a unique story to share, or an interesting point of view, it's time you explore the world of podcasting with KitCaster. You can expect a completely customized concierge service from the staff of communication experts. KitCaster is your secret weapon in the podcasting business. Your audience is waiting to hear from you. Go to kitcaster.com backslash dismove, etc. to apply for a special offer for the friends and listeners of this particular podcast. Disability Movement Etc. is a Blank Owl production. You can find out more about what we're doing, including past episodes, show notes, and transcripts at blankowl.com. The music for this episode was composed by Adrian Doc Blust. If you'd like to support our efforts with Blank Owl, head over to support.blankowl.com. I hope you all join us next time. Mm -hmm.